Thanks, Scott. You'll be pleased to know it's also the Bible reading for this morning. And in fact, it's probably not the Bible reading for this evening, but that's okay. I would encourage you to continue reading through John as we, we spent four weeks going through the first start of John, and this is the second session of four weeks, although I think it only end up being three weeks, we have a guest speaker on the fourth, on going through this, this gospel. And, and my encouragement as it was back then was to keep reading this through. As we talked about, John is written that we might believe on Christ. He keeps going through and talking about the signs that tell us who Jesus was and what Jesus has done. And so I encourage you, through the weeks, not just reading the passages, and I encourage you to do that, but as you spend time with God, just read through the book over a number of days and then keep doing this sort of thing. It's amazing how God continues to speak through you. One of the things I do is I have a psalm for each month. And so every day I read that psalm. And you kind of think after the first day, I got it. It's not that tough, especially if it's like Psalm 117. It's like two verses. But as you keep reading it, God continues to show you things from it. And so again, I would encourage you in John's Gospel. Um, we don't have them today because we ran out last time and I haven't bought any more yet. Um, but there'll be some Gospels of John down the back next week. And if you haven't got one, then please grab one on the way out. If you don't have a Bible, just let us know because it would be really good if everybody, when they're at home, could read and to study and to ponder upon. Let's just give thanks again to God for his word and ask that he might bless us as we look at it this morning. Lord God, we thank you for the word that you have given to us, not only by your spirit, through your prophets and apostles in the scriptures, but in the person of your son. And as we come this morning and look more about him and his life and his words, that we might believe in him, that we might know that in him we can know you, that there is nothing that will come between you and us because of Christ. He is the place, he is the one in whom you dwell. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We looked last time again at the story of um, the water into wine. This is five weeks ago. And how this pointed to who Jesus was. He then went from there down to Capernaum. Verse 12 is kind of like this transitional period, but John never writes anything without some sort of purpose in his mind. He, he kind of does these tying together thoughts. So, for example, verses 23 to 25 which Scott read to us, are kind of a transitional between this story and what happens next with um, Nicodemus. At the end, if you remember what Scott had to say, he talks about how people believe because of the signs, but he didn't entrust himself to them. And then the next story is Nicodemus who comes and says, I want to know more. And we learn something new about faith. It's that kind of transitional statement. So when we read a sentence like this, it's not just simply a matter of saying, yeah, okay, this kind of, like, you know, those novels that you read and they've got all those flowery bits. I don't know if anyone else reads novels. It's probably wicked. But they've got all those flowery bits where they describe the pretty flowers and the smell in the trees. I skip those. I figure they're there for girls. Because um, there's no sword fighting or anything else like that. It's, to me, that's transitional. It doesn't tell me much. In the Gospels, there really aren't a whole lot of transitional bits that don't have some sort of meaning. So we need to think about this. 
Jesus went to Capernaum with his mother, brothers and his disciples and they stayed for a few days. In the mind of, of the people who are reading this, who were believers generally, the early church, they have an understanding who Jesus' mum and his brothers were and these new disciples. And we understand that at this stage his mother and his brothers, well, his, his, not his mother, but his brothers and his sisters, assume, assuming, they weren't supportive of him. They didn't back him. At this stage, they didn't acknowledge who he was. He had this group of new disciples who, who did follow him, but his brothers really didn't. They kind of, it seemed, put him at a distance, and we read in the other Gospels stuff about this. And this would have been part of what was in people's minds, their understanding. When you get through a little bit further in this passage, there's a quote from Psalm 69. And in Psalm 69, in a bit earlier than this quote, the psalmist is talking about how his family rejects him because of his zeal for God. Because of his desire of God, his family kind of pushes him away. And the commentators talk about how there's this idea in John's movement here. It's kind of a setup that when you understand what's going on here, it's not just his zeal for the Lord, but it's the context of Psalm 69 which kind of flows through this passage. And so keep that in your mind. What Psalm 69 talks about is the fact that the writer loved God, wanted to follow God, wanted to do things for God. And that because of that, the people around him pushed him aside. They rejected him they condemned him, and he was praying and asking God that he would not be destroyed because of them. So ha have that in your mind as we move through here. All right, the problem. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem just a few days from there. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Why did this happen? Why was it? And the commentators talk for all sorts of different reasons, but it seems most likely the reasons were these. Jewish folk, as they went up, particularly men, as they went up to the temple, were supposed to bring with them something to sacrifice. Normally a lamb, a sheep, whatever it was that was without blemish that came from their herds. Now, if you think about all the people over all of Judea who were coming into Jerusalem, wandering along with their perfect sheep all the way from their hometown 20 miles away. I don't know if you've ever tried to herd a sheep or even get them to follow you. You'd have to tie a rope around their neck. They like their pastures, they like all that sort of stuff. But to take them 10 miles, 20 miles, 50 miles, kilometres, sorry, I grew up with some Americans, um, it's a long way to go. And so what people generally tend to do, what the temple tended to do, is it said, hey, we'll save you the trouble. <laughs> we'll have stuff here so that you don't have to put yourself out. Commentators even suggest that it's really... Has, has anyone ever pet lamb? Anyone ever pet chicken? Pet rabbit? We used to have pet rabbits when I was a kid. They were cute. We would feed them, and then every now and then they would disappear, and we'd have rabbit stew. 
my dad used to go out the back and deal with them. And we, as kids, we kind of, as we grew older, kind of worked out what was going on. And it was heart-wrenching, although tasty, to eat something that you had invested in, that had been a part of your life. And the idea was, if you raise this lamb without blemish, that's the best of your herds. It's the best of your flock. And you take that to the temple. It's much easier to buy one there that you've invested absolutely nothing in, that you don't have to walk and go sacrifice that. In the earlier days, they used to have this little market outside of Jerusalem so people would only have to walk a couple of kilometres in to be able to sell their, their sheep or their goat or their dove. But what seemed to happen, and this is where people talk about being in Matthew, Mark and Luke's gospel, he calls it a den of robbers. The temple knew that it had to be unblemished. So I brought my unblemished animal that I had brought up from there. I travelled 50 kilometres and I rocked up to sacrifice this. And the priest, they suggest, would go, that's blemished. Sorry. That really is blemished, but we have unblemished ones over here that for a price you can buy, that are acceptable. And so there's this idea that there was this commerce going on, not only to get money into the temple or into the people who were associated, but that it was an, an easy thing then for people to step aside from their responsibility to, to bring that which they loved, that which they had been involved in that which was a part of their life to offer it to God. It was a easier, less personal worship. And everybody seemed to be satisfied with that. Then there's the money changing, because it talks about in a moment that he overturns the monies of the, those exchanging money. People were supposed to give half a shekel, temple tax, particularly in this period up leading up to the Passover, all males, 19 years and older, were supposed to come in to give something. There was money from all sorts of places. So if someone came and had a coin which had a Roman emperor on it or some god of somewhere else, of course the temple's not going to take that, right? That's idolatry. And you can't have that going to pay your tax towards God. So you really need to exchange it for money which isn't offensive. All right? Does, does that make sense? It's like in Sudan. You wanted to buy stuff and you had American dollars. You can't use American dollars. You have to buy Sudanese dinar. That's acceptable. You can't just pay in American dollars because, well, for all sorts of reasons. So there would always be people who would take your American dollars and give you dinar. Now, if you did it officially, which is what happened at the temple, you would often have to pay that little bit extra to help people out. So, for example, in Sudan, when we went to the banks, we would give one American dollar and they would give us a thousand dinar. The real exchange rate down in the black market, which I didn't go to, just telling you, was if you gave one American dollar, you'd get two thousand dinar. In other words, officially, they made a little bit of money out of this exchange. And the suggestion was that that was what was happening here in the temple. People were coming and they weren't having to give of themselves 
from the worshippers' perspective, but also the community was reaping benefit, not towards God, but towards the community, towards the people. Whether it was exorbitant or wicked is by the by. Whichever way that it happened, it was bad. But that's not the worst of it here. What it seems is that Jesus was offended that this was going on in the temple precinct itself. Right in the very centre of the temple, you had that area where the priests only could go. Then you had the place where the men, the Jewish men could go. Then where the Jewish women could go. And then you had the court of the Gentiles. The place where those who wanted to come and worship God but weren't Jewish could come and learn about God. They could hear about him. They could come to understand him. They could see worship in action, a place of quietness and a place of learning and a place where their questions were answered, where they could bring things to the Lord. But what the Jewish temple had allowed to happen is for them to be pushed outside. If they wanted to come, they had to mix and mingle with the bleating of animals and exchanging of coins. And Jesus says, after making a whip out of cords, driving people out, he told those who sold doves to get out of here. And he said this, stop turning my father's house into a market. In the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, there's this emphasis on the wickedness of what happened. The fact that there was not an opportunity for prayer. John doesn't talk about those things, possibly because... That happened at the end of Jesus' ministry, at the final Passover. This is right at the beginning of his ministry. So it's a different situation. But here, he is concerned because those who come, come into a place which is not a place of worship. Not a place where they can meet with God, but a marketplace. A place where other stuff is happening, where commerce is happening where stuff that belongs outside of the worship of God, no matter how good and right it is, is becoming a substitute for the worship of God. People come into the temple and they're doing all sorts of other dealings, a market, instead of spending that time to know God, to worship him in his place of worship. I might ask you this morning, why did you come this morning? What was your purpose in coming here to church? Why did you come? And the other one, sorry about this, what did you bring? See, all those people in that day who went up were struggling because they didn't have this opportunity to do what the temple was for, which was a place to worship God. There was all this other stuff that was in the way, and in many ways that became their purpose to negotiate through this and to get in, to do it with ease. They didn't have to bring their animals the 20 kilometres. They didn't have to struggle to make sure they had the right money. They could, with ease, just do that transference at no cost to themselves get in, do their duty, and leave. The temple had made it easy for them to do that. 
made it easy for them to come and to, if you like, watch. But not participate as they're supposed to. And Jesus gets angry with that. He's angry with the, the people in the temple who allow that to happen. Because that's not what the gathering together was for. And I ask you, why did you come this morning? Did you come here with that purposeful intention to worship God? Or is it just something you do every Sunday morning? Before you go to Maccas? Or before you catch up with your family and friends? It's just a done thing. Did you purposely come here prayerfully to com commune with God, to worship together as a community, to sing his praise? And what did you bring? Did you just toss whatever it is in your pocket? In your heart? And when you get here, just give kind of what flows out? Or did you purposely come to give him praise? To give him your tithes and offerings? Not for what you can get from it or what benefit comes to you, but for him, for his glory. When you come to sing, does it depend on what the song is? Or do you want to express to God how fantastic he is? I'd encourage you to think on those things. Because Jesus gets concerned with those times when the gathering together of worshippers is limited either by the desire for ease on their part or because all the other sorts of things crowd out the worship of God. And in particular, I think here, the things that we do that crowd out the unbelievers from being able to join with us in finding out about God. I, I trust we're not like that, but I think we should continually think on those things. Is the way that we behave mean that those people who come in here to know more about God are turned off? Or do we welcome them? Do we provide activities and, and, and actions and ministry that they might find it an easy way to know God? I encourage you to think on these things. All right, verse 16. To those, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a quote from Psalm 69. I didn't sleep well last night. In fact, I slept poorly. I think I woke up every 20 minutes or so, which is unusual for me. I normally sleep all the way through, snoring terribly. But I didn't. This phrase, zeal for your house will consume me, kept popping up into my mind. I've been pondering it all week. Every time we hear that, we see that as a positive thing, don't we? That Jesus is someone who is consumed with a desire to be zealous towards God. But as you read the commentaries, and as I look back on Psalm 69, there's this great debate. It seems more likely from the word, the word consume is to devour. And from Psalm 69, the idea is that his zeal, the psalm writer's zeal for God, led to his cons being consumed. 
And he was asking for God's help in this idea, the fact that as people, as he wanted to worship God, that that led to his destruction. And I'm just been pondering, which of these two meanings is it? I think it's that one, but it could be the other one. And because I like to know what I'm saying and I couldn't come up with anything, that kept me up all night. So I just throw that out to you. I'm going to take that as the meaning, but it could be the other one as well because we are to be consumed with a zealous desire for God. But his disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. Why is this important? Well, because Jesus goes on to talk about his death and his resurrection in the words that he says. This attitude that he has towards God brings about in the end people who will push him aside and in the end crucify him. His desire for people to know God and to worship God in honesty and in truth will in the end lead to his death. And his disciples, as they look back on this, pondering this, understand that this is, is something that is spoken of him. Not in the prophetic sense that the psalm writer was looking forward to Jesus, but in that sense in which Jesus, when he talks about the prophecy in the writings of the Old Testament, shows that it talks about this messianic trajectory that where it keeps pointing to him as it goes along. And as they look back, they say, yeah, this is Jesus. This is talking about him. Anyways, the Jews rock up and say to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? John's all about signs. What sign can you show us to prove your authority? The interesting thing is they didn't say, you can't do that. In fact, the Pharisees were probably quietly applauding. They didn't think all this should be happening, most likely, in the temple precinct theatre. Those people who came to tell him off weren't saying that what he did was wrong. They accepted, I think, that the way he was responding is right. In fact, you know, if you don't like what I said about how people come to church and they're not really prepared to do it, none of you are going to come up to me and say, no, that's wrong. Now, you can't say that. We're allowed to come just however we want to. That's cool. And we don't have to prepare our money beforehand. It's quite all right just to dig into our pockets and give loose change. No one's going to walk up and say that to me. But that doesn't mean you're going to think I've got a right to come and tell you that. You might be a little bit offended, in fact, that I say, no, I actually think you should prayerfully beforehand consider and pop in an envelope or in your pocket that which you've desired. And it should be sacrificial. You know, hold on a second. This is the idea that they come who do you think you are that you can tell us this stuff? You're not one of us. You're a prophet, whatever else. We want proof that you have the right to say this. Give us a sign. What they failed to understand was that the fact that he did it was in and of itself a sign. The fact that he understood what the temple was for, and he understood the difficulties that were there, and he understood how it was pushing people away. And he acted with integrity and love towards God. That in and of itself was the sign of who he was and his authority. But they wanted something different. They wanted some special miracle to put the tick I think it was George Beasley Murray, one of the commentators, said they wanted a God that was domesticated, whom they could ask for something and get an okay wherever it went along. 
They weren't keen on this, this person who just came and acted with holiness and integrity. They wanted the little badge to say it's all right. And then Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, I don't know about you, whenever I've read that as a kid, I thought, that's kind of like a blow-off statement, isn't it? It seems rude because there's no way they're going to do that. You want to sign, it's kind of like, I'm going to give you something impossible. That's, that's how I've always kind of read it. It's really been interesting reading the commentators on this as I've gone through this week. They suggest that often it's, it's really presented more as a riddle to these guys. Just with Nicodemus when he says you must be born again and Nicodemus says, I don't get that. And Jesus said, well, you should be able to get this. Come and think about it, buddy. He, he gives this riddle. He gives this comment to them that they might understand something. I've always, because it comes later on, but the temple he spoke of was his body, right? And it was in terms of being raised again. But it's very interesting, the word temple that he used here is not used elsewhere in the New Testament for the whole of the temple precinct. The word temple that he used here is actually the word just for that inner sanctuary where God dwells, where the glory of God rested. That's where it was. And the suggestion is that he's giving them a bit of a riddle. He's saying, you know, that sanctuary, that place, you destroy that. Not in the sense of go in there and knock it down with hammer and tongs, but you let all this stuff continue on that's happening. And you see all of that degraded so much. And I tell you what, I'll come and I'll purify, and you'll be able to know through what I do that there is a place where you can have that interaction, that sanctuary with God. He's prompting them to think through the consequences of their action. He's saying, you want a sign? You continue down. I will continue to do the things that I do. It is a sign. In other words, he's pointing them back, saying, I've just given you a sign, guys. But he did it in terms of a riddle, and they, just like us, I suppose, and just like Nicodemus, literalize it, and they ask, but it's taken 46 years already to build this thing, and you think you can raise it in three days? They weren't prepared to put their mind to the situation. But then John writes, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. The, the word temple there is exactly the same word as the temple above. The sanctuary, the place where God was, the place where we really interacted with God was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The mention of sign, the mention of the sanctuary, and Jesus' comment about the zeal, uh, the disciples' understanding of the zeal that destroyed and consumed him. John is bringing up in his writer's mind, in, in his readers' minds, this idea that they needed to understand that that place, that person, whereby they could know God, was in Jesus. And the sign that they should look for was what he's going to talk about towards the end of the book, which is Jesus' resurrection. One of the things I love about the Alpha Course is when it talks about how people might know the truth of Jesus, we look at the resurrection. For us as Christians, that is the sign, the evidence that we know that this story of Jesus is true and that he is God. He has declared 
with power by his resurrection from the dead. It's here. All that stuff about worship and everything, the things that we should learn about it. But John is trying to point out for us as God's people and for those who don't yet know God, that how can we know and how can we come into this place of knowing God when everything else is trying to make noise and everything else and push us away? And even if the church itself is doing stuff which turns us away from God, the place where we could have this intimate relationship with God is in the person of Christ. And the sign that brings us to understand that is his resurrection from the dead. And that as he continues to live, as we read through the rest of the gospel, as someone who knows God, light of the world, bread of heaven, etc., etc., that the world around will continue to push him away and in fact seek to destroy him because he is God himself with us. It is his very actions which are holy, which will cause his demise, but will end up in being this sign where we know how great he is. What do we take away from this? Two things. Firstly, I want you to again think, ponder why you came and what you brought. And next week before you come, I encourage you to prayerfully come, having asked God that when you come, you might worship him in spirit and truth. If you came today just out of habit, without thought, with no purpose, then I suggest that before you leave your seat, you bow your head and you ask forgiveness for that. That you ask that God might show you himself and that you might worship him and glorify him. In fact, before the next song, we might just spend a little bit of time in quiet that you might, if that is how you came, without much thought, that you might confess and ask forgiveness for that. That in this last song, we might truly just worship him as we brought to. And I'd encourage you to think then, before you come next week, what you need to bring. Get yourself right with him. Confess your sin. When you come, make sure that you bring those things that you can offer to him, your gifts and your skills, your money, but also your fears, your anxieties, your troubles. Don't just come and leave the same person. We're supposed to come and worship and to relate with Christ. Secondly, this passage is there for the people who are reading to begin to see that Jesus is, in Jesus is the person, the place where the sanctuary is, where they can know God. We just have to look at his life and we have to look at his death and resurrection and we can know him. All through, John just keeps saying again and again and again. And here he's saying Christ is the temple. He is the sanctuary. He is the place you can know God. If you are not a believer, if you don't yet believe in Christ, think on this. There is nowhere else that you can have that knowledge, intimate knowledge of God except in Christ. And when you come to Christ, the other things, the distractions are pushed away. And you can know God in truth. 
He takes away our sin. He deals with it by his death and his resurrection. All those other things which stop us from actually knowing God, Jesus has dealt with. That's a very, very short statement. But if you want to know more, in other words, if you've come so that you might know God, that you might have a relationship with God, that you might have God working in your life, whether because of the difficulties that you're going through, because of the things that you've done, or because of your desire for a future in heaven instead of in hell. Spend some time talking with someone. Tap the person on the shoulder, tap the shoulder of the person next to you and say, I want to know more about Jesus. They might look at you like a bit dumbfounded and say, oh, I'm not sure I can help you. Or tell them that they need to tap the shoulder of the person next to them. And then both of you listen. And if that doesn't work and everybody's still here at the end, that's fine. We'll just go through the gospel again. But if you want to talk to someone, you're not really comfortable talking to the person next to you, come up the front. We have a prayer time at the end of the service. But you come up the front and someone comes and sits with you and they say, what can I pray for? You say, I don't want prayer. I just want to know more about Jesus. And let them share with you this gospel. I'd encourage you to do that. Don't leave. Back out into the place where everything else is pulling you away from Jesus. And then lastly, those of you who are believers, consider Christ again. Consider that in him you might know God. And so if you came this morning and you haven't met with him, haven't met with God, spend some time at the end of the service, or as you go home, sit Ponder what Jesus has done again. Come into the presence of God. Talk with him. Share with him. You should not go out from here having done that. But you, we can do that anywhere. But it's good to gather together that we might worship in this way. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your goodness to us, that you sent Jesus that we might know you that he is the one through whom we can know you. Father, some of us came this morning. We said we were coming for worship, but really it was just habit. Just something that we did. We didn't intend for you to speak to us. We didn't want to learn more about you, really. We just got into the habit. We're distracted by all sorts of other things. Just a moment of quietness. We would like to confess to you that that was wrong. It was a sin. We thank you that you forgive us in Jesus. And we ask that now as we sing this next song, that through these words we might truly worship you. And by your grace, encourage us next week to come prepared to worship with all our heart and mind and soul. We pray for those who don't yet know you, that they might today seek you in Christ Jesus. 
They might ask the person next to them or come up the front and talk to someone. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name.